Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode 68. Today, later in this episode, it's going to be Andy talking about Lord of the Rings. That's right. But not just talking about Ents and Goblins and Orcs. We're going to talk about authorial intent. So, who doesn't want to talk about that? No one. Exactly. Everybody wants to talk about that. Yeah, all the time. Uh, yeah. Before we get to that other thing that we do in every episode, I do want to remind you that through the end of the month of February, we're having a prize giveaway it's not really a contest, but it's something you can participate in. You can go over to Apple Podcasts. You can, I think you primarily have to do this on the app in your phone or the app on a laptop. But if you leave us a five-star review, so you click the five stars and then you write a review and you submit that uh, before the end of February from those names uh, starting last week. So January, what was that? 24th through the end of February. We're going to pull names from that pool of people and give away some things, some bookstore stuff, some t-shirts, things like that. Uh, I did see we got one review last week. So to get to 100, I think we need 25 more. So be one of the 25 chosen or more. We would love to have 50 of you do it and get to 125, but we need 25 to get to 100. So uh, with that, was there anything else I was going to say? Books and business. That is the next thing. Okay, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. He did it out of order, Tim. He wants me to do it again. I want you to do it again. Books and business. Let's talk about <laughs> some books. All right, so I'll, I... Okay, so last week I did Art for God's Sake by um, Riken. Leland? Not Leland. The other Riken. Philip? Philip Riken, yeah. And I said I would have it finished this week, and I got distracted by a different book, and so... I'm going to talk about this book. So when I went to Grand Rapids over Christmas to see my in-laws and their family, one of the things that Rob and I did one day when we were able to break away is we went to the Baker Bookhouse. And if, you've, if you're ever in Grand Rapids, the Baker Bookhouse has a huge section of used theological books. So I bought like commentaries there in the past. So we went and it's cool. I'm in the commentary section looking at stuff I teach in class and all the stuff's picked over. I didn't find anything. So my wife wanders off and... I go to find her and she comes up to me and she's like, hey, what about these? And she's got two academic level apologetic books. Number one, shout out to my wife for being very discerning there. I already had both of them, but they're like high quality titles. Like, where'd you find these? She's like here. And she takes me to the discounted academic section. There's literally a section of discounted academic books. So I picked up a couple that look good. The one I'm going to talk about this week is by James K.A. Smith called Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? taking Derrida, Leotard, and Foucault to church. So you read that book on postmodernism, and I had bought this. I'm like, oh, I'll pick my postmodernism book up. He's essentially saying, what is postmodernism, and is there anything good about it, is there anything bad about it? Now, what's fun about this is he writes this in 2006 when the emergent church was like at its height, and the emergent church is essentially postmodernism run amok, I guess you could say. but he talks about critical theory, like right here at the beginning, which today that's maybe something going on. Maybe. And <clears throat> he then also mentions each chapter he uses, he tries to write this for a lay level or a popular level or like a 
non-academic level, even though it was an academic section. And so he'll use movies to start off the chapters on different topics. And so he starts off with The Matrix, of course, because, you know, Plato's Cave and all that. But he puts a footnote in for The Matrix, and it was interesting that this was in 2006, and it is back when it was Andy and Larry Wachowski who wrote, who wrote The Matrix script. Now both have transitioned. One is Lana Wachowski. I can't remember what the other one is, but they've transitioned their gender. So it's interesting that since 2006, this book's like a little time capsule. So, uh, so far I'm loving it. I don't know how much I'm going to recommend it, but Tim, Gottimer, uh, hermeneutics, dare to all that stuff from that class. It's mm-hmm. all making more sense. Like, I think mm-hmm. I want to go back and read Gottimer again. I really do. So I know. Wrong with so you. I'll give you a report sometime in the future. All right. I'm up. So I've got, uh, I have The Lies I Told by Michelle Zink, and uh, this book's a little bit of a story. So I order, I order books from publishers, and sometimes they mess up, and they send a book that I didn't order, and they usually forget sending me something I did order, and this is what this is. This is a trashy teen romance book published by HarperCollins. Harper Teen is the On publisher. On a scale of one to Twilight, where would you put this in the trashy romance section? And uh, sinful, deceive me, and feed my flesh category. <laughs> so that would be Twilight. So on a scale of one to Twilight, Twilight. Twilight. All right, there yeah. we go. Charlie, thank you for making that our scale. Thank you so much. And I really hope just certain people so we, are listening. Now we, now we have three entities of scaling books. We have the Shack Stack, the Goodness Scale, and we have the Twilight Scale. This is crazy. So whenever you have a bad teen romance book, we will consult the Twilight Scale. <laughs> oh, this is so good. So um, when this came in, I was like, okay, this is basically just a secular publication uh, that's written to teens. And so it kind of intrigued me just because this is not a genre that I ever read. And uh, so um, I took it and then I was just like, I'm going to read through this thing at some point. And I finally made it through. I think I've had it for like a couple of years. And after I'm done with this books and business, I plan to just throw it in the garbage can. But um, basically it's fiction. This is fiction. All right. And it's it's written to teens and it's about a teen girl and her dysfunctional family. Uh, her parents are basically criminals and they um, they they swindle people out of their money. And so they use her to get close to this really rich family. So she befriends basically their son and she has a romantic relationship with him. And it's the lies that I told and the tension that she has as she becomes basically a Dame Folly and they rob this guy, kid's family blind of a whole pile of money. So there's the story. I spoiled it and everything because it's a bunch of trash and I don't think you should read it. So officially, is there a place you would like to stack this book? <laughs> Well, you want me to put it on the shack stack? I want you to put it on the shack stack. We can put it on the shack stack. It's probably. on the shack stack. Yes. <laughs> now, I'm a little bummed uh, because I have also brought a book that is shack stack worthy. And I was pretty excited. It was like, I'm going to finish this book. I'm going to bring it to books and business. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be the first book we put oh, on the shack stack. But it's not. But in the sovereign plan of God, Tim gets to place the Twilight book on the shack stack. Way to rely on the God, God's sovereignty in this. Yeah. One. Good job. So is, are you done with talking about your book? I guess I should just caveat, I didn't read the beginning of the book. I basically was just skimming through for, 
I was looking for romance. That's what I was looking for to see if they're going to promote that kind of a lifestyle. And then they did. And I read like the second half of the book. So, but I, I can't imagine I really care what the first half has to say. Sure. So for my book this week, I have Still Evangelical, Insiders Reconsider Political, Social, and Theological Meaning. Uh, essentially, it's uh, a consortium of essays from uh, heavy air quotes, uh, leading evangelical minds. Okay. And uh, if you were to pick up this book, which I'm just going to say for the most part, I would not recommend you just haphazardly grab this book and read it. Uh, because there's just a lot of, um, I don't know exactly how to classify it. I just say a bad perspective on evangelicalism. Uh, to say that they're inside evangelicalism, depending on the perspective you're thinking from, you'd say, well, they're definitely not with my position. Uh, I would say with the rare exception of maybe one or two of the contributors, all of them are awake, if you understand what I'm saying. They are, they are fully woke. Um, and uh, this was written in 2018, and there's a lot of uh, discussion in here about how the 81% of white male evangelicals voted for Trump in 2016, and it was the absolute worst thing that an evangelical has ever done. And so their discussion is, in light of 81% of white male evangelicals voting for Trump, who clearly isn't a model evangelical, should we even keep the title for themselves? And so um, if I was going to give it a rating, it would be a very low score, like a one. Instead, it's going to go on a stack? I do think I'm going to put it on the shack stack. Right. Here's why if I was going to rate it a one, I would rate it a one. It did challenge my thinking towards understanding racial minority in our country and how we, uh, you know, I grew up in Iowa, predominantly white Iowa, and how we engage that in a ministry context. And there, there was a chapter that talked about how most of what we read is white men. And, do, and I just thought, have I ever made an effort to try and read the perspectives of a black or brown, or even not color, but gender, a female theologian. Uh, there was one author, who, a contributor, who made the point that the moment a, a woman writes a theological book, it's labeled as for women. It's not for the church or for everybody. It's, well, her theological perspective is only for that gender because that's what she is. And, uh, but so challenging my thinking that way, maybe. It's good to read broadly and to understand the perspective of perspectives of, of perspectives of others, and uh, so I think it was good to help me think through some things. I mean, not in a sense of changing my own viewpoints, but uh, there was a chapter that I thought was pretty reasonable where he was advocating for listening to each other. Um, but at the end of the day, I think every one of these contributors would point at me and say that I'm racist and that I'm wrong and being uh, anti-gay and I'm transphobic. And, well, do they bring that part up? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, they do. Okay. It's, I would say all of the um, all of the different colored sprinkles of wokeism are all across this book. Hmm. So, um, and so, and it's not it's not hard to discern that you can you can hear the tone 
come across in certain chapters, you can, I do think some of the authors are more reasonable than others. So all that to say is there would be an, a niche for you to read this if you were trying to engage in a study of how our modern evangelical culture is trying to deal with these trendy topics. But even then, I wouldn't say that this is an academic source even talking about those things. It's more, it just seemed like a bunch of rants. Like it's not purely academic. It's not reasonable. It's not consistent. Um, the logical arguments they're making uh, when applied to their own positioning uh, crumbles themselves as well. Um, and, and so a, a lot of my thinking as I read through the book was, man, I really wish you would look at your own position with that with that idea. Yeah. Like you'd be critical of yourself with, with that critique of, of our belief system. Because if you were, you would, you know, want you'd be logically consistent and then you would understand that well your position doesn't have that either and so so maybe some good things there but i think in general i'm not going to recommend that people read it um maybe for pastors it might be helpful for you to, just to get a glimpse into the postmodern woke mind mm -hmm. um and so i as I read, it did stimulate me to, to look at some other things. And there are other popular books that have been written in the last couple of years and uh, like Fault Lines, you've talked about that. Mm -hmm. And it did maybe kind of motivate me. Maybe it's it's worth reading through. Owen Strachan wrote a book yep. uh, in a similar vein um, and uh, more Same. in our position. Um, Christianity and Wokeness? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think that came out last summer. There's an apologist named Neil Shenvey who's doing a lot of research on this. He's got a lot on, and his stuff is very academic too. Yeah, and so at the end of the day, this is book number two for the Shack Stack. There we go. Um, but if you're a pastor, if you're wanting to get into that vein of thinking, you 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 would consider yourself to have a, a reasonable amount of discernment as you read, and you're not going to be easily swayed by any argument. Uh, I could see maybe some benefit, and in that case, it would be a one for that niche group. But just think in general, it's probably not worth uh, worth the 200 pages. You could just read one of the books of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and that'd be better serving. So the um, this book, Still Evangelical, is published by InterVarsity Press, IVP. And um, <clears throat> InterVarsity Press is really kind of pushing this uh, agenda. If you go to their website, you can see newly published titles, and they've been publishing a lot of stuff in this uh, in this vein with wokeness. So, like one book that they have coming out is called "Faithful Anti-Racism: Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change." The first sentence of the preview is: "It's long. It's no longer news to most of us that our society has a deep-seated racist racism problem." Um, that's like their opening line. It's like okay, we're going to look at this from the assumption that this does already exist. Uh, Vody Bauckham's book in Fault Lines, he basically argues, no, we don't have a deep-seated racism problem. Uh, that's what Bauckham challenges their opening presupposition. So what's coming out of InterVarsity Press as a publishing house is the assumption that there is a deep-seated racist problem within uh, the United States of America. So you might agree with that conclusion or disagree with it, whatever. I'm just saying they are arguing and writing from that perspective. And in their efforts to dis take care of that issue, they've written titles like 
Young, Gifted, and Black is another forthcoming title. And as I bring books into our bookstore, I'm constantly seeing titles like Beyond Racial Division. That's another one that they have. So that's just kind of where that publishing house is at, and that can give you a little discernment. So I'll just tag real quick on that. The definition of evangelicalism has been under question for quite a while, and David Bebbington probably is the beginner definer of it, his quadrilateral of activism, crucicism, crucicentrism. Many of the chapters in this book reference that. Do they they agree or disagree with him? They agree, which is interesting, but then clearly there's a reinterpretation of what it means to be Christ-centered. Okay. Or scriptures, the authority. Okay. okay. Uh, obviously, they're choosy with what sure. scriptures. Okay. I just I had to read Bebbington a lot for my thesis with Bonhoeffer, and it was so. Anyways, Bebbington can be a, a place to start if you want to go that path. All right. So today we're going to talk. We're going to have a conversation about authorial intent, and we're going to use the introduction to the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings, to start our conversation. Um, I got a nice copy of the books, and about six months ago, I read the first book of the two books that are the Fellowship. And I happened upon this, and so I thought, well, Tim and Charlie and I had to talk about it, and it'd be fun if you want to listen in too. So we're going to talk about authorial intent and history. No? Okay. Let's have a conversation about the Lord of the Rings. Well, kind of. So I got a while back. No, I know like, it's not. This isn't books and business. N- no, what no. What are you talking about? <laughs> what? Oh, two points. This, I mean, ooh, well done, Charlie. So I got, um, I got a new set of Lord of the Rings a while back. They're gorgeous. They're the illustrated by Alan Lee versions. It's they're very nice. And so I sat down to read them. Um, I've made it through book one of the Fellowship, and I had to set it aside because now I'm busy with school school year stuff, but as soon as I get to a break, I'm going to pick up book two and I'm going to try to go through all six books, which reader, there's three big books you know about, but each one of those books is actually two books. So there's six books, but that's not what I want to talk about. As I picked up this gorgeous edition, there is something to be said for aesthetically pleasing books. It makes you want to read them. You can jump in anytime you want because I know you want to say something. Oh no, I totally agree. You know, it's actually been a movement with the digital industry, because digital books are so cheap, people actually that want books tend to actually want nice books. Go ahead. And actually, what I have in... Oh, go ahead. Can I jump in on that? Yeah. So there's actually... there's I, I wish I knew it specifically. There's a YouTube channel, and it's about Lewis... Not Lewis, sorry. Get Lewis out of here. Uh, Tolkien. Oh, he's coming back in a minute. Well, all, I think it's primarily like Lord mm-hmm. of the Ringsy stuff, but he previews like new... Lord of the Rings things that come out like every year, every couple of Ooh. months or whatever. And when that series was about ready to come out, mm-hmm. now you have these new ones in the bookstore. Yeah. I they're do. like really nice, really big, nice. thick. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, um, and so, but he made a comment. He's like, like, they, cause they came out with, um, lost. I don't know what if it was lost tales or like, it was like illustrated middle earth. There's like, all, and a Silmarillion. Yeah. We they, have a whole pile of them at the bookstore. Yeah, and what they did was they, they matched the size of the binding and the height of the book. And so like they're very intentionally meant to match on a bookshelf. And that guy commented on it. He's like, you know why I like these? It's because you can buy this and this and this, and they look so nice on the bookshelf. And at the time, (laughs) at the time I'm like, dude, that's so silly. Why would you do that? 
But then, but then when you see it in the bookstore, you're like, oh, dude, I'm ready to spend a hundred dollars. <laughs> you might need to get more than a hundred. <laughs> Thinkling's price. Thinkling's price. No. Anyway, that's my thought. Yeah. Well, so, and even like right here, I have this awesome, it's a, it's a, th- it's all three in one. I think there's a name, is it an omnibus if they're all three in one work? And like, I don't know. It's it, okay. It's all three Lord of the Rings in one volume. It's nice. And it's actually, my wife got this for me and she made sure to get um, the best translation because there are different, or edition, I should say, because there's different editions. Um, and it's nice, but it is also, it's not as nice because of the like way that it's, it's okay. It's really readable, decent paper. And so it's a good edition, but compared to the hardcover, nice illustrations, thick paper, like really nice books. I really like the other one. So there's an aesthetic value to it. <clears throat> in fact, in the fall in Bible study class, I actually have Dr. Little come and he shows us fancy Bibles, not because you need to have an expensive Bible, um, but because you do value things that are beautiful. And I think there is uh, something to be said. God, like look at the way he created the world, even the sin cursed world we live in. It's beautiful. God values beauty. So I actually think those sorts of things are uh, valuable. And so here's just an example that I get this new edition I can put on the shelf. I've read it before, you know, but man, I want to crack that baby open and, and read it. So I open it up right at the beginning and I'm the kind of person, some of you are not like this and this is not self-aggrandizing, but I'm kind of, you know, I start and I'm like, oh, here's the introduction. Here's the preface. Here's a note on the text. I should read this and I'll start working through it. And I would say it's worth skipping sometimes in some books. Go ahead, Dr. Little, you were going to say something. No, I just thought it was funny how you're skipping all of this and you're being sarcastic. That's all. You go ahead. (laughs) I'm just, not everyone likes to read prologues and prefaces. I do. Maybe it's just because I'm a bookseller and there's helpful information in there a lot of times. Me too. Like uh, the question I always get from my students is, Mr. Stearns, do I have to read the footnotes? Do I have to read the appendices? And like, why wouldn't you? It's part of the book. Anyways. Okay. So here I'm in the forward to the second edition. And this is actually what I want to talk about. So he writes these. They, they do very well. He gets critical feedback. Uh, Some people don't like his book. Some books, some people do like them. They have different reasons. They like them and they don't like them. And so in the second edition, the foreword, he, he starts talking about some of the feedback he's gotten. And that's actually going to bring up the issue that I want to talk about. So I'm going to be reading a little bit. This might be a little lengthy of my reading, but just stick with me. So here, this is Tolkien. He says, the Lord of the Rings has been read by many people since it finally appeared in print. And I should like to say something here with reference to the many opinions or guesses that I have received or have read concerning the motives and the meanings of the tale. Now I'm going to insert comment here. People, when they read this, immediately started wondering some things. Do you guys know what they were wondering about? Like who is Jesus or what's the allegory refer to or piece it together for us. Yep. Yeah, it's those sorts of things. Like what's the meaning behind this? Is this... Like, this can't just be a tale. It seems like there's other things going on. Um, allegory is a big charge, or a, a big guess. A lot of people thought these were allegories. In fact, I don't think she'd mind me sharing this, but my mom, before she was a Christian, read this. And even as a non-Christian, she wrote a paper in her sociology degree at Drake University on Christ and Frodo and how there's, like, so many connections between that, which is intriguing, thinking of an unbeliever uh, with curiosities writing that. So <clears throat> he gets a lot of these inputs or these ideas. And he says this, he says the prime motive. Now, if the author of a story 
if you're like, I think you were doing this, and the author's like, hey, actually, this is what I'm doing. Who do you think's right? The author. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I mean, I believe in authorial intent. Yeah, and that's where we're going today. <laughs> see, see, this is the point. Like in in everyday life, we we recognize authorial intent. You can say you don't. You can say your reader responds. You can say the reader has a perspective and a life, and they bring experiences to the table. And so you can't expect everyone to interpret something the same way. But in day to day communication, when you miscommunicate, you lean or you tilt toward the author's intention. So he says this, he says, the prime motive was the desire of a tale teller to try his hand at a really long story that would hold the attention of readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times maybe excite them or deeply move them. As a guide, I only had my own feelings for what is appealing or moving. And for many, the guide was inevitably often a fault. Some who have read the book or at any rate reviewed it <laughs> which I think is funny when he says some who have read the book or reviewed it as though some of the reviewers didn't actually read it. Some who have read the book or at any rate have reviewed it have found it boring, absurd, or contemptible. And I have no cause to complain since I have a similar opinion of their works. <laughs> That's awesome. Yikes. I mean, horrendous. He's, he's not pulling punches here. This is pretty good. That's a screech of the Nazgul. Right it, there, it, it, oh, yeah. I mean, you can just hear it right there. So anyways, he, he's just talking about his works and he's talking about why he wrote it and he's giving people the answer to the question. Now he goes on to say this. He says, as for any inner meaning or message, it has in the intention of the author, none. It is neither allegory nor topical. As the story grew, it put down roots into the past and it threw out unexpected branches. But its main theme was settled from the outset by the inevitable choice of the ring as the link between it and the Hobbit. The crucial chapter, the shadow of the past, is one of the oldest parts of the tale. And so he's going on to say that there's no allegory. There's no symbolism. There's no topical treatment. It's, he even goes on in the next paragraph to say the real war does not resemble the legendary war in its process or conclusion. If it had inspired or directed the development of the legend, then it certainly the ring would have been seized and used against Sauron. And so he goes on to say, that's not why I wrote it. That's not how I wrote it. Um, but the real kicker here is this. He says, other arrangements could have been devised according to the tastes or the views of those who like allegory or topical reference. But I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations. And always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned. Now, I thought that was interesting. He would rather have history, even if it's, whether it's true or just like a fake history. And then he says this, with its varied applicability to thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purposed, dom uh, the purposed domination of the author. An author cannot, of course, remain wholly unaffected by his experience, but the ways in which the story germ is uses, uses the soil of experience are extremely complex, and the attempts to define the process are at best guesses from evidence that is inadequate and ambiguous. He goes on just to continue more about that. But what I thought was interesting is the distinction he makes between 
applicability and allegory. So let's talk about those two things. So you guys help me. If I say allegory, what, what's an allegory? Somebody give me an, either an example or a definition. What's allegory? The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Okay, that's going to come up in a moment. So let's set that one aside. Give me another example of an allegory. You got any more? If you don't, that's fine. <sighs> From a biblical perspective, I think that there's an allegory. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it was intentionally written as an allegory. Okay, so let's do this. Uh, how do we define allegory? Let's start there. It's an advanced symbolism, uh, this advanced metaphor that is more than just one point. Uh, I think even some have said that an allegory is a, an extended metaphor. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that, but I, I mean, the principles are pretty similar and the ideas are kind of the same. Could another example be to use the same author, but a different work? Uh, like Lewis does this all the time. Till We Have Faces or uh, That Hideous Strength. So I would say... Uh, like a story told with a definitive meaning that's not explicitly stated. I think a hideous stare of strength is an allegory, yeah. though. It's more of like... I mean, it doesn't fit perfectly, but there's... the story. Have you guys read Animal Farm by George Orwell? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Is it George Orwell? Yeah. So Animal Farm is like a... Orville Renbacher? No. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean... Oh, now I'm getting corn jokes in my head. Oh. Okay. So... <laughs> it's a farm. It, ooh. Didn't he root the allegory and the authorial intent in his description there? Yes. So with Orwell, he was purposely writing about communism. And so the farm is the communist empire. The pigs are the Bolshevik revolution. The pigs then become the, they run out the people. Like it's literally a like a step-by-step -step historical telling of an actual thing replaced with like these fake people. Right. And so like, I think that's the traditional idea of an allegory. And I think there's elements of allegorizing you can find in all the things we just mentioned. So yeah. let's, let's just say that's allegory. So then if when Tolkien says there's a difference between, like he writes this story that's very historical, and he says it, it's not an allegory, it has applicability. What's the difference? Like what's applicability mean in your opinions? And if you don't know, that's fine. But Well, I think we've, we've mentioned multiple times that the Lord of the Rings is myth. And that that myth has themes that are found many places, could be applied in many arenas of life, but the author didn't intend a specific meaning. I think that's the key. Yep. I would agree with that. I think when he was writing this, he was writing a story that was really intriguing, had a realism to it. And then because of that realism, you'll be able to see it apply in similar ways to life. But I don't think he was thinking of those. What did you just, he, he wrote a story that was what? I don't remember. Did you in intriguing? Intriguing? Oh. Interesting? Intriguing. I, I thought oh, you said intriguing. No, I didn't. You said intriguing. My bad. Been, if I'd said intriguing. Oh, brother. That would have been fantastic. Well, and he did say <laughs> that the story put down roots and branches. Yes. <laughs> okay. So what's very well known, and people know this, is that there's no allegory in Lord of the Rings. I do think, though, that he says the ideas of his writings grew out of what he calls the leaf mold of his mind. So you have ideas come up and like you read, 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 and there's like this mulch at the bottom of the floor of the forest that's like thick leaf piles where stuff decomposes. Those are all the ideas you've learned and then out comes the story. Okay. So I had always thought 
okay, he writes no allegory. Lewis is the guy who writes allegories. So I'm kind of looking into this, and I discovered this letter that Ruiz, Lewis, Ruiz. Rance Ruiz. <laughs> so he listens to the podcast, not, oh, yeah, not yeah. C.S. Ruiz, Rance Ruiz. Lance the pants, that's right. Okay, um, so Lewis got asked similar questions about some of his books. And so here's a, a letter that he wrote. Now, I got this from um, a lecturer or a, a professor out at Prince Edward Island at a school, Brenton Dixon, on his website. So hat tip to him. He has a post saying, is Lewis a writings, is his writings, are they allegories or are they myths? And so he posted, he, he found this letter, so I looked the letter up, and this is an actual letter from Lewis. So he says, this is from December 29th, 1958. Uh, Dear Mrs. Hook, so Mrs. Hook had asked him a question. He says, by an allegory, I mean, so he starts off by defining an allegory. He says, I mean a composition, whether a pictorial or a literary one, in which immaterial realities are represented by feigned physical objects. Ergo, a pictured Cupid allegorically represents erotic love, which in reality is an experience, not an object occupying a given area of space, or in Bunyan, a giant that represents despair. And I think like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, we, we kind of think of that one too. Yeah. So Mrs. Hook must have asked him about Aslan, because then he says this, he says, if Aslan represented the immaterial deity in some way in which the giant despair represents despair, he would be an allegorical figure. In reality, however, he is an invention giving an imaginary answer to this question. What might Christ become like if there really were a world like Narnia and he chose to be incarnate and to die and to rise again in that as he actually had done in ours? This is not an allegory at all. So in Paralandra, mm. this also works out a supposition. Suppose even now, in some other planet, there were a first couple undergoing the same that Adam and Eve underwent there, here, but they actually did it successfully. So in Paralandra, he's asking a question, what if the same thing happened over here, but it turned out differently? So he's saying, well, what if in Narnia, Christ did come, but he chose to become like a lion? What would that look like? So it's, it's interesting how he finally distinguishes between an allegory and his own kind of like a myth. He says, allegory and such supposals differ because they mix the real and the unreal in different ways. Bunyan's picture of giant despair does not start from a supposal at all. It is not a supposition, but a fact that despair can capture and imprison a human soul. What is unreal is the giant, the castle, and the dungeon. The incarnation of Christ in another world is a mere supposal. But granted, the supposition, he would really have become a physical object in that world as he was in Palestine, and his death at, on the stone table would have, been a mere, would have been a physical event no less than his death on Calvary. Similarly, if the angels, I guess I'll stop right here. Oh no, actually, I'll skip ahead. He says, again, Ransom, to some extent, plays the role of Christ, not because he allegorically represents him, as Cupid represents falling in love, but because in reality, every real Christian is really called upon in some measure to enact Christ. Now, that sounds a little odd at first, but I think what he means is um, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Uh, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I think he's saying that once you're a Christian, you're to live the way Christ would have. And so he says, of course, Ransom does this rather more spectacularly than most. <laughs> I think that's an understatement. 
But that doesn't mean that he does it allegorically. It only means that fiction, at any rate my kind of fiction, chooses extreme cases. Thank you for the kind words and sayings about my works. So I thought that was interesting. And why I wanted to bring this up is, how can we know, did Lewis really write allegory? Or did he write myth? And how can we know if Tolkien wrote allegory or if he wrote myth? Like, what's the thing we would turn to to answer that question? Him. Okay, the author. Yeah. They say that they didn't intend to. Mm -hmm. Their definition of allegory is very refined and specific. Yes. (laughs) And so within any kind of a metaphor, metaphors break down because they're only supposed to serve as analogies. And it almost feels like he's having to read a lot of correspondences into the giant in despair so that all of these points have to correspond. Well, you keep comparing things, then guess what? Certain things are going to finally not correspond. Why is the giant despair a giant? He doesn't have to be a giant. You know, it could be, I don't know, some ent. So what Lewis more or less just did was he read the letter from that kind lady, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, Captain Hook's wife. Caveat. Yes. (laughs) And not only did he say caveat, he was like, caveats. Yes. And that, that was what I was thinking was, okay, fine. Translating that letter into my own interpretation, which, you know, it's maybe not the best idea. <clears throat> but yeah, I guess it could maybe be allegory, but because of this, 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 and this, it's not allegory. Yep. But I think broad strokes where, I mean, yeah. Defer to Lewis. Defer to Lewis. If he didn't want to call it allegory, we shouldn't call it allegory. But in a broader definition of allegory, it's, you know, yeah. it's depicting very specific themes in animal ways. So I don't know. So you bring up a really interesting concept here. So if, what if the definition of allegory changes and right now what we call allegory, it does fit his, his story, but back then what he called allegory, it wouldn't have fit. Did you write allegory? Well, it'd be a categorical difference. So yes, he wrote this kind of allegory, but he didn't write that kind of allegory. Sure. Sounds good. Tim's like checking out. (laughs) He's like, this is dumb. (laughs) All right, here's where I'm going. I think it's interesting that um, literary critics do this all the time. They look back and they analyze and they try to get at what's going on. <laughs> they end up debating amongst themselves. And I'm not, I'm saying literary, I'm not saying the guy who I, whose blog turned me on to that one uh, letter, but I'm saying people do that. But you can't do that. It's impossible to have this conversation if you don't think the author has some level of authority over the intention of his words yeah. or her words, you have to value and you have to recognize authorial intent. It's the same thing in conversation. So again, I may have shared this before, but if I miscommunicate when I'm speaking to you, Charlie, and you're like, you just said what? I can't believe you'd say that to me. I'm like, What do you mean? And you tell me what you think I said. And I say, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I misspoke. I meant this. You would then say, okay, fine. But you would never say, no, 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 you thought you meant that, but I'm telling you, you said these words, you actually meant something else. No one ever does that. Yeah. And I think the opposite happens when Christians read their Bible and don't recognize this principle. So like a podcast, an episode ago or so, uh, Dr. Little was talking about the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
and he walked us through some sections in the Bible where the Shema is repeated, and he made the point that it means one thing, and how did we sort that out? We actually looked back at what the original audience would have thought. We looked back at what the original writer would have thought. And so I would just appeal that even here in, in just a, a kind of a secular work, we recognize this is how communication works. But for whatever reason, when we open our Bibles, there's this temptation to think God's not going to do that. He's going to like mystically speak to my mind or he's going to like, give me a vision or a dream, or I'm going to read something in the text and there's going to be some free association meaning. And I would simply say that I don't know there's anywhere in the Bible that I could point to that says that's how Christians today should expect God to communicate with them. So what do you guys think about that? Am I being too extreme? Is that overstated? I'm not arguing, by the way, from secular literature, ergo, that's how we study the Bible. I'm simply saying God designed humans to communicate a certain way we do that all the time. I don't think that's part of the fall. And therefore, doesn't God know how to communicate to us in the way he designed us? Do you think I'm being overstated in my reliance on the author's intention? No, I don't believe you're overstating in the author's intention. Just as people communicate, you know, like if we had Lewis in front of us and we could press him further and be like, mm, I don't know about your definition of allegory here, friend, <laughs> you know, and then we could have a conversation about that. But still, I would have to respect his definition of an allegory, mm -hmm. even if I disagree with his definition of an allegory. But and he so stated in a positive or negative sense, you could go either way. Lewis was really big on the definitions of words, right? And I can't think of the word that he used for it. Um, it's something like cutting or what people do to words. You know, oh, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I'm not thinking of it either. But so I think he would respect the idea of clarifying our own definitions so like if i'm going to say well i understand this is your definition of allegory and you don't fit that but i'm going to say here's this definition of allegory i think you would respect the attempt of like well at least you're defining you know your category and okay if it is defined that way then sure it is in there so like i don't think there would be this like you know to use his chronological snobbery of someone in the Ooh. future looking back on the past mm -hmm. and saying they are what they aren't and so on and so forth. But on the other side of it, I do think there's a problem in redefining words to make things mean what we want them to mean. Um, but I, I like the illustration you're making as we're th talking about a story about uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a children's story, does have a lot of meaning in it mm -hmm. that is good. And I think that's legitimate. I'm not saying it's not there. But, but I don't think he is. Um, well, no, yeah. So the, the point is, we can talk about this, you know, day and night about a silly little story, but it really comes to bear when you're looking at the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think you're wrong at all in saying like, well, you know, I would actually say, well, sure, maybe it's okay to bicker over a definition of allegory when you're talking about Lewis and his stories, but you don't have the right to do that when you get to the scriptures. Um, and you, you, you can't redefine what those things mean there. Because then you're you're gonna, yeah, stretch at these meanings mm -hmm. that are clearly not there. Now, I think for just a moment you're reading the Lord of the Rings, and you mistakenly think that Lewis or Tolkien is allegorizing, and you think let's take the war thing. You think that the whole thing is World War II, and so as you read, you're looking to figure out like who are the Nazis, who are the Allies, who's Japan, who is Britain, 
Where's Churchill? Well, what? the Easterlings, of course, are Japan. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like there's all of those symbols. And so let's say you think that as you're reading through the story, you're assuming those, you're looking into, you're like, oh, this has got to be it, this has got to be it, this has got to be it. And then one day you somehow meet Tolkien and you ask him, he's like, no, that's not what it means. What harm did you experience? I mean, you just, it's a story. Yeah, you misunderstood a story. No big deal. Now, what I don't want any readers or any listeners to think, I don't want you to be scared to pick up your Bible when I say this. I don't want you to feel like you can't study your Bible. But I do want to help you to think about something maybe you've never thought about before, if you haven't. That it's possible if you're not thinking about the original audience, the original biblical setting, the history that the Bible was written in. When, like last last episode, James is written, Charlie pointed this out, James is written to Jews. What did the Jews say all the time that Dr. Little told us? It was the Shema every day. So when James says that to the Jews in the church, I think it was in Israel, but it is the diaspora, I understand it, but they're all like Jerusalem people who have left. Then what's going on? They're going to hear that in a certain way that we don't. And it's, it's just helpful. And so this is not like a, oh man, you're getting everything wrong in your Bible. It's simply to say, as you read your Bible, maybe start thinking about who was the original audience and what, like, you know, in your study Bible and it says this was written in this year and this book was written in this year and you're like, who cares? I just want to know what God wants for my life. Well, maybe just spend a little time reading that background. That actually might help you better understand God's word. And if you're thinking that sounds silly, I would just say the evidence is look at how you communicate every day and then look at how you want your words interpreted according to your intention. Yeah, so the term we would use to describe that would be th- this whole idea of is it an allegory, is it not an allegory, your definition, my definition. This is the perfect place to just slip in, well, it's just semantics. <laughs> is it not? It is, yeah. It really, the same word, developing the meanings over time and yeah. what meaning, yep. which is, again, another great thing to think through when you study the Bible. Yeah. It's like, what is the semantic range of that term? And that's, ex- yeah, that's exactly what it is. <clears throat> So in Lewis's semantic range of the word (laughs) allegory, our definitions of allegory today might not necessarily directly correlate, but there's probably some overlap. And I think we'll probably agree, we'll get to ask him someday, potentially. It's like (laughs) that there are some allegorical aspects to some of his works and some are more pronounced than others, perhaps. But So uh, completely shifting (laughs) from that to something else. Uh, We're going to have a final thought from God's word. And if you'd like to turn to James chapter one. And the last time I shared a little devotional, it kind of led into a, the next episode. And if you remember the last time we were answering the question, what is God's will? And we looked at first Thessalonians. Well, part of what God desires is your sanctification. And we have a whole episode on that. You can go and listen to that. Uh, discussion on what is God's will and you know how does 1 Thessalonians 4 fit into that paradigm. The next question we're going to ask in that series is, let me look at it so I get it correct. <laughs> so the first is, what is God's will? And then how does God accomplish his will? So there, it's assuming some knowledge that you've already come in the scope of what we've targeted as God's will. And so to define it, God's will, as we're discussing now, the context is important and the author's intent is important. So 
What I mean when I say God's will is his desire for you to be internally transformed in what you love. So your desires changing as a Christian. That is what his will is for you. First Thessalonians 4, your sanctification. So if he wants that, how is he going to bring that to bear in your life? Or does he bring it to bear in your life? The answer is yes. And so what he is after is this transformation. And here's a couple of ideas just to maybe throw around that you can actually read the word. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're transformed. And the reason I mention that is because that's a lot of people, that's how they answer that question. How does God accomplish this? His word. And they even will quote John 17, 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. But I think it's important to realize that just reading the Bible doesn't do magic to you and make you a different person. It's a part of the process because the word is the sword of the spirit and you cannot separate the truth of the word from the process of transformation. There's seeing yourself in truth, which the word accomplishes, but it's not just reading the word. So the teaching of God's word alone doesn't do this. What God does to bring the transformation accompanied with the teaching is he trains you. That's the idea of the next episode. And he's going to train you through trial. And it's in those moments of difficulty in life where the truth and your heart, so your heart, your desires, your motives, what you want, and his desire for transformation all intersect. And you see this in both the Old and the New Testament, where he specifically uses trials to bring about change. We're not going to look at the Old Testament passage right now. We'll look at that in the next episode. Right now, just look at James 1. And you probably know these verses. They're probably very familiar to you. But James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So first, just note here, you have a couple of imperatives. Count it all joy. Consider, it's, it's a thinking word. And what you're thinking about is the difficulty. Like there's various problems, trials. We know that all of those fall under the sovereign hand of God, almost like he wills them to happen. Now, last in that previous episode, we talked about the difference between something that is desired and something that's decided. And here I think they match. Like God desires for this transformation to happen. So he decides that you're going to have trials (laughs) and there are various kinds. Sovereignly, providentially, he allows these things to happen and there could be many things. And we're going to talk about in a future episode, what do these usually look like? There'll be a couple episodes from now, but they usually look like people that upset you or circumstance that, uh, circumstances that cut off what you wanted to happen. So like, I really wanted my day to go this way and well, I got a flat tire or you know, I got a bad grade on that test or my boss yelled at me at work or something like that, a difficult circumstance or a difficult person, or it could just be like a barrage of temptation. This same word for trials further down in chapter one of James is used specifically in the sense of enticement to sin, like a temptation. 
And so it could be something like that. Like you really want to do something that you know is wrong. And what are you supposed to do in those moments? You identify that there's a trial happening. You're considering it. You're thinking about it. And you're supposed to be joyful. Well, how in the world do those two things come together? Bad circumstances, difficult people, joy. And the connection is you know that God is accomplishing his will in you. Actually, the way that you see that trial and respond internally to it changes you. You're accomplishing, you're, you're allowing God to accomplish his will for you. He, he makes you more like Christ through those times of your life. And you look at verse 3, you know that this test of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, it's not the same. I don't think it's the same word. It's been a long time since I've compared them. But I don't think this is the same word for patience that comes up in Galatians 5 as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but they're really close. I'll just say that. They're really close. That I don't think steadfastness or endurance and patience are all, you know, you're like, oh, that's not a fruit of the Spirit because it's not listed in the fruits of the Spirit. Well, there's a lot of virtues that the New Testament mention that aren't in the list in Galatians 5, but we would all say that those are fruits of the grace of God working in you and changing who you are and therefore changing what you do externally. And so the idea here is to think about the trials that God has placed in your life and consider them joy because you know that God is using them to transform you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.